Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We are going to cons- continue, I about said consider, but to continue our series on the four loves by C.S. Lewis and a little bit of a this episode disclaimer. Well, it's just about Eros. That's yeah, it. We're, we're talking about Eros. Do they need rom- much more of a romantic disclaimer? Romantic love. So if you're a parent, if you're, uh, you know, if you are able to use your own discernment for yourself, do it. And if you have that discernment over other people for whom you're responsible, yep. this might be one where you don't play it in front of a group. I don't know. So we don't have any specific plans. Well, we haven't recorded it yet either. So we'll so we see don't know. how it develops. Generally, these these episodes, when I talk about it, at least can usually stay pretty tame, mature. But we'll anyway, just how it goes. want you to know that beforehand. We're dealing with so, Lewis too. With that being said, we have some... Thinglings business to tend to. Book and business. Let's talk about chapter five. Five of the four loves. So we're talking about Eros. And uh, the first thing that Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> that Lewis uh, does is he kind of uh, works with his definitions. Uh, one of the terms that you're going to hear us referring to frequently is Venus, or at least that's the term that I'm going to use. I'm going to use it because Lewis uses it. And that's also one way to keep the conversation um, more mature, maybe we should say. Uh, So uh, he makes a distinction between Eros and Venus. He defines Venus at the bottom of page 117, uh, the carnal or animally sexual element within Venus, I intend to call Venus. Within Eros, sorry, I read that wrong. Within Eros, he intends to call, uh, I intend to call it Venus. So, you know, what is he talking about when we're using the term Venus? Well, there's Eros, which is more of the desire. And then there's Venus, which is the actual act. Um, So that's what Venus is. Um, uh, So uh, what what is this correlation between Eros and Venus? And he actually, uh, Lewis starts out quite good, I think. And in, in that he recognizes that the lack of eros does not mean that Venus is sinful or wrong. Um, I'm going to actually read a fair amount as we work through this chapter, and I'm going to be commenting on it and discussing it. I'll be connecting it to the Bible and the Song of Songs as we work through this um, this chapter. Here we go, page 118. Sexuality may operate without eros or as part of eros. Let me hasten to add that I make the distinction simply in order to limit our inquiry and without any moral implications. Interesting, he says without moral implications right here because he brings up morality later on. But at this point, he's just trying to um, define things. And I also think funny, and this is the conversational tone of the four loves, he gets right into morality even in this paragraph, but (laughs) we'll keep reading. I am not at all subscribing to the popular idea that it that it is the absence or presence of eros which makes the sexual act impure or pure, degraded or fine, unlawful or lawful. So that's a big uh, component of even a contemporary discussion of love and sexuality, the presence or absence of eros. And he doesn't say that if eros is gone, that 
that Venus is thus uh, bad or wicked. Yes. So just to clarify, yes. Eros is the love related to sexuality. Yes. But when he says Venus, if I'm understanding him, yeah. he's saying basically act of sex. Yes. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to continue reading now. Um, but that, was a, that is a big statement that he makes here, this distinction between Eros and Venus. Uh, uh, the lack of Eros does not equal um, uh, sinful or wrong Venus. Okay, continuing. If all who lay together without being in the state of Eros were abominable, we all come of tainted stock. In other words, people um, participate in Venus um, without Eros on a regular basis. So that helps us even just with the, the definitions. Continuing to read, the times and places in which marriage depends on Eros are in a small minority. <laughs> Most of our ancestors were married off in early youth to partners chosen by their parents on grounds that had nothing to do with Eros. In other words, they weren't in love. They married because their parents said to. They went to the act with no other fuel, so to speak, than plain animal desire. And they did right, honest Christian husbands and wives obeying their fathers and mothers, discharging to one another their marriage debt, and bringing up families in the fear of the Lord. So he actually is really hitting the nail on the head when it comes to this distinction between Eros and Venus. And we see this even within the Song of Songs. In Song 3, there's no Eros, okay? The the woman is loving her husband simply uh, out of genuine, I would say, charity, agape, love. It's genuine love that drives her to do what most women would just scoff at. Um, so um, what he's communicating here, uh, I think, can really help us in understanding this Eros and Venus uh, component. And even within some conversations, some women really struggle because they feel like a hypocrite or they're sinning against their husbands because there's no Eros. Um, but they can still offer Venus. And Eros is the desire, desire. for romantic yes. love. The... Yeah, or they just have no Eros at all, but their husband, he's interested. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And so they can offer to their husband the Venus, but there's nothing. And they feel like a hypocrite. And But that's actually not a biblical category. And Lewis, I, I think, amazingly actually recognizes yeah. that because within most of the marriage books, um, they confuse the two. Okay. No so. comment. <laughs> <laughs> I almost I was about to make a comment and then realized no, never make you you can make comments. <laughs> I well, my, my there's a lot of listeners in your shoes, well, so you're important. my my. Well, I'll tell you what I was thinking. Okay. So like, eros is a term of love, like eroticism. Mm-hmm. But then there's like another word, like to be amorous, uh-huh. like amore. amore. Mm-hmm. And with that That's Italian Latin, I'm, I'm really curious if the Vulgate ever used amor to, in, in its translation of the scripture. So like if you get this idea of like, there, it would probably be a, a semantic category, like to be amorous would be like eros, like you're getting in the mm-hmm. sexual desire tone. Yeah. I'm just curious, which I don't have the language capabilities to mm-hmm. know that, but... I think with Amore, isn't that when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie? It is. <clears throat> uh, yeah. And my, you got it. Now no more comment. And you, you lasso that moon and you bring it on down and you eat that. You eat it up. It's a wonderful life, baby. You guys are horrendous. 
<laughs> it's you know anyway sorry tim go ahead so we're on page 118 if you remember and um <laughs> it does not use amoris in song one three or four okay so they're using different words okay all right <clears throat> um so this was an important component to uh the the discussion and i uh i was surprised to see this in in lewis um, but um, with his medieval mindset, I think that it helped him to get to closer to the truth. Okay, so uh, with that, let's continue to think. Th- uh, we're going to continue to develop his thought here. Again, it's more of like a conversation, and I'm going to skip a l- specific spots. Can I, can I actually mention what I thought was a really interesting quote there? Uh, okay. So I, I like you, I <laughs> caveat of like, I was definitely reading through this in heavy preparation of the previous chapter. Uh-huh. My my going through Eros, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing Tim walk through this. You know, so I'm looking to learn here. So I don't really have any specific thoughts. But in that big paragraph, the the one you just read, right? The times and places in which marriage depends on Eros are in a small small minority. I bracketed that and thought the same thing you did. I'm like, boom. And he explains it. Cause like yeah. marriages historically were not built on do you have this erotic love for someone? But then in the, on the next page is a really interesting quote. It has not pleased God mm-hmm. I have that the distinction between sin and duty should turn on fine feelings. Right. So now what is he defining eros as when you add that? Statement? It's like a particular emotion. Right. The feelings. And that God is not pleased with the idea that we would say your act turns on this really particular desire and whether you have it or not would decide if it's, you know, am I doing it out of duty? Am I doing it out of the desire, whether you have it or not? Like you're, you're, you're not helping God out here to make these like rigid categories. And that's kind of how I took it. But I was, I was going to just ask, what did you think of that phrase? Well, I, I highlighted it more from the correlation between Eros and fine feelings because he's actually giving us a definition of Eros. Oh, uh, because the it, oh. it should not turn on fine feelings. It has not pleased God that the distinction between a sin and a duty should turn on fine feelings. So yeah, it's so like the, the the duty and the sin would both be referring to the same act, mm-hmm. but one would be a sin and one would be a duty based on like the presence of the feeling. So like if I have the eros, mm-hmm. it is not a sin. But if I do it out of duty without the desire, mm-hmm. you know, like, is that, it is a sin. No, it's not. Is that what he's getting at there? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, w- I bracketed that and I was mm-hmm. like, I don't really know where I'm at here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which should mean the, no comments. The, but... the, par- the sentence before it is talking about adultery. Yeah. It may involve breaking a wife's heart, deceiving a husband, betraying a friend. Okay, so what do you have there? That's actually Eros. What's Eros doing? It's driving somebody to sin. So it is not As if pleased the act God. was dependent and precursored by the right. feeling. Right. Yeah. So he's making a distinction between Venus and Eros and how Eros is actually led to sin. But then you have these marriages that were arranged where there is no Eros. Eros. Hey, I'm, but I'm here Venus representing all the single listeners. That's it. You keep it up. All the single <laughs> listeners. All the single listeners. Okay. So moving on, sexual desire uh, without Eros wants it the thing in itself so what is he doing now so in page 121 he starts to define uh what 
eros is. And he makes a distinction between eros and uh, eros and, and Venus in, in the definition of eros. So it begins at the bottom of page 120. He, he has this statement, sexual desire without eros wants it. And he puts it in italic in, in ita- italics the thing in itself see it wants hmm. venus it wants venus for venus's sake but what does eris want eris wants the beloved, beloved. okay the eris eris hmm. actually wants the person and this is again in uh lewis's day he even understood this distinction which has just been com- compounded with pornography in our culture within pornographic culture and then even many men uh, which, by the way, this whole chapter on Eros is really pre- presented from like a masculine perspective. So if it seems one-sided, that's because really it is. Uh, in fact, some would say that that's one of the downfalls of the chapter. Um, but he then uses an illustration of a man wanting a woman. And he says, well, strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. Okay? And and so... Um, he doesn't want a woman. He wants what the woman can give him. He wants the thing in itself. And that's what pornography does. There's really no connection to the woman, the beloved. There is no beloved. Uh, instead, there's just the, the Venus in and of itself. So that helps us to just understand this definition, this distinction between uh, Venus and Eros, uh, which I think does help us, but I think it might lead Lewis astray later on as we uh, continue to develop this. All right, so we're moving through and we're continuing to page 123 where he begins to talk about morality. He discusses the church's propensity for asceticism and uh, he rejects it uh, and he uses scriptural grounds. In fact, I don't see Lewis using the Bible frequently, but he does here uh, in this section. At the bottom of page 123, St. Paul dissuading his converts from marriage says nothing about that side of the matter except to discourage prolonged abstinence from venus uh, and and uh and this was actually pretty good he's really close here um he then um well, let me just keep reading. What he fears is preoccupation, the need of constantly pleasing that is considering one's partner, the multiple distractions of domesticity. Domesticity. It is marriage itself, not the marriage bed, that will be likely to hinder us from waiting uninterruptedly on God. And surely St. Paul is right? If I may trust my own experience, it is within marriage as without, the practical and prudential cares of this world, and even the smallest and most prosaic of those cares that are the great distraction. Okay, what do you guys think of that? No comment. It's New New Testament. What do you mean? It's just 1 Corinthians 7. How can you have no comment? I'm actually doing some study on this right now. (laughs) So like writing this article about like... Singleness. Singleness, and, and thinking that through... It's it's really not a First Corinthians seven thing, what I'm focusing on, but that is a relevant passage to to look at. Um, so I, I would just say, how do you? Well, why is? I think he's. I think you're right. He's pretty close. Like that when when Paul mentions like the benefit of acting like you're not married, does Paul have in target like the one issue of marriage will be the sexual desire, and that will be the the one thing that keeps you from serving the Lord. I think it is probably wider than that. So I would tend to yeah. agree with this, that understanding. 
the text is the text I think really is highlighting not text as yeah. much as the affairs and the cares of this world like the responsibilities the side responsibilities of yeah. okay of having a wife and children and material uh wealth which you will have to i mean i'm not talking about like being rich i'm just talking about you're gonna have to have stuff like a house household management yeah household management yeah. all of that kind of stuff is what paul's talking about which is why he says hey you should be single and then you can devote yourself completely to the lord and then he, so he's, he's kind of teeing that up, but then he asked that rhetorical question. So surely he's right. St. Paul is right. Yeah. And then what comes next? <laughs> if I may trust my own experience. <laughs> right. Because he was single for most of the experience of the guy who's virtually single his whole life. Right. So I think that he's pretty close here, but I still think he's a little bit off because the, the, the conversation is introduced by Venus. All right. At the end of First Corinthians chapter six, the issue is Venus, and because of this asceticism within the church, the wives. I mean, this isn't like a complete cause and effect, but uh, most people believe First Corinthians six, right before First Corinthians seven, this asceticism within the church is saying, "Don't have sex; it's like sinful." Hmm. And so, what are then some of the some of them doing? Well, First Corinthians six is don't have sex with prostitutes. Okay, and so then First Corinthians seven is say, hey, you need to each be fulfilling your wifely and and uh, husbandly uh, duties to yeah. one another. All right, so there is a component of eros and Venus that is connected to the conversation, but as far as singleness and the and the um, the uh, the uh, advice to remain single, well, I mean, sex doesn't. That's not. I, a time-consuming component of the married life. <laughs> it's the, it's the, uh, um, the household affairs, and and so I think that that's where he is right. Um, yeah. Okay. So, any other things on that? Otherwise, I'm going to keep going. Uh, okay. So, moving on to then page one twenty-five. Um, this is where I think he. Um, this is actually something I have taught and written about. It's actually in our book. Um, but uh, he really says, you know what? Our culture is way too sexualized, which is really funny since he's writing in you know the 50s and 60s. Uh, this book is, I checked, it was published in 1960. So uh, right before the craziness of the sexual revolution and but then he writes, I be, in, on page 125, I believe we are all being encouraged to take Venus too seriously, at any rate, with a wrong kind of seriousness. All my life, a ludicrous and portentous solemnization of sex has been going on. All right, so, I mean, not trying to create too much of the cultural moment that Lewis was living in, but he's basically saying, you know what, sex is too important to you. And in our book that my wife and I have written and are working on getting published, you know, one of the points that we make is sex is really not that big of a deal. And I think I felt that he was communicating the same point here. Uh, in our culture, people are thinking about sex and, and elevating it too much. Uh, in the next paragraph on page 125, one author tells us that Venus should recur through the married life in a solemn sacramental rhythm. Young man to whom I had described as pornographic, a novel, 
that he much admired replied with a genuine, genuine bewilderment, pornographic? But how can it be? It treats the whole thing so seriously. So then he begins talking about hmm. some other stuff that's just kind of like, well, what in the world? But advertisements and, and this uh, sexualization of his culture and, and so on and so forth. He brings up Freud at the end of page 125. Mm-hmm. All right. So this sexualization of the culture. And, and uh, Lewis is exactly right. Uh, sex is not that important of an issue. Um, in our book, that's all that we had. We had uh, sex is really not that important. You need to quit thinking about it, quit making such a big deal about it. There's a reason God gave us one book in the Bible about it. And then, hey, guess what? There's a whole bunch of other books, which you need to be studying. Uh, but then we sent the book out and got some feedback from people, and they actually pushed back on that. The reader does think that it's important. You can say it's not important, but it sure feels important. And uh, it is important in that it can you can really mess your life up. Uh, if you don't love God, love biblically. So uh, we added and we kind of created a bit of a paradox in our book. Sex really is not important. <laughs> and then we had another section, sex really is important. And tried to just put, to dethrone sex. And I felt that's what Lewis is really trying to do and does well in this chapter, hmm. is he seeks to dethrone <clears throat> sex and say, listen, Eros is not that big of a deal. Neither is Venus. Quit making it more than what it is. Now, what does that sound like? Well, earlier in the book, yes, it ceases to be a god when it yes. ceases to be a demon. Exactly, or the other way. It ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. Right, and you've, you've uh, made idolatry. it a god. Yes, it's they've idolatry. made it a god. That's okay. exactly it. And so he's right. Oh, on. Dethrone. That's really good. To that's dethrone. That's really god. good. I dethrone just caught sex. that. That took yeah. took me a moment. When it's I love the next page, the comparison he makes. On go ahead. On you read so, it. So one twenty six. <laughs> he's like, well, is is it serious? Is Venus serious? Yeah. So is he's eating. like, let me give you, let me give you four reasons. Hold he on. Spells he, it out. Hold on. He says quadruply. So quadruply. And he Who's gives four reasons. Who's ever used the word quadruply before? Yeah. That's See, pretty, this is great. That's quite a savant move. And then he gives four reasons. It's theologically <laughs> important. It's important for like the pagan culture we're around. It's a moral issue. And then there's this emotional, effectual issue like right. with, with it. But guess what? So, <laughs> so, is so eating. is eating because we eat the, and you know, there's a theological difference here. The blessed sacrament, you know, is like this morphed Anglican, like transubstantiation, like we eat the body of Christ. Yeah. But he also, there's this mystical union yeah, yes. too. So he too, he, well, cause marriage is a sacralizes in yeah. the Catholic church as well. Oh yeah. There's that. So like, I forgot about with that. With that backdrop right. informing him. Like he, so he's, he's almost even critiquing the Catholic church this way. Yeah. Because he's telling them that it's not like, like, but he, you can see the comparison of the sacrament. Yeah. Because the first thing he brings up with food, like, it's is is Venus important theologically? Yeah. But so is eating theologically. Right. And he brings up a sacrament. It's like right. in the Catholic Anglican mindset, yeah. like, what is he doing? Like, how sharp of a critique? I don't know. See, I didn't like this analogy. So it's interesting. You bring up the whole uh, Catholic Church with the sacrament. I just love how quippy it is. Yeah, eating is also yeah. serious. <laughs> it is quippy. Theologically, is the vehicle of the sacrament. Ethically, in view of our duty to feed the hungry. Socially, because the table is from time immemorial, the place for talk. Medically, as we. Uh, Dyspeptics? I don't even know what that word means. I have to look that up. They have indigestion. I had to look it up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we don't bring blue books to dinner nor behave there as if we were at church. It's like you're like solemnizing this idea of the marriage bed. Uh-huh. But when you go to dinner, you don't do that. Yeah. And th- yeah, it's important. Uh-huh. It's important for all these reasons, but you don't 
you don't make a God out. Well, some people right. do, but you don't make a God out of it. I, I think that's a quippy way of yeah. like, oh, you know, we do make this really important. Yeah. That's a good reductio. Yeah. So I think the analogy does break down a little bit, but still as a reductio and mm-hmm. as uh, that's good. Now at the top of page 127, then note what he says. We must not be totally serious about Venus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then he talks about how there's jokes about sex in every single culture. Why is that? And uh, how the Greek Aphrodite was laughter-loving. So throughout history, there's been this correlation between Venus and comics and laughter and joking around. And it's just kind of like, what is that? And he's going to bring this all around to our bodies and how, well, things just tend to, there might be eros, but then you've got this body and guess what? Things don't go the way that you planned or hoped or whatever else. And, uh, and so, so he connects these two things. And so he calls Venus this trickster. Um, now this hmm. is an interesting component of the conversation because, <clears throat> and, um, and the song talks about it and how, um, uh, intimacy is something that is fragile and is easily destroyed. Um, and now he connects it primarily to like the body, even indigestion and various maladies that can be associated with the body, uh, which is interesting and true. And it can be part of this comic relief, but at this, at the same time, there are other things that make intimacy very fragile and that things Eros might be stirring within a married couple, Okay, and it's going in a specific direction, and then all of a sudden, something happens. And whether it's the indigestion or the something physical, it's associated those little foxes. That's right, or it's something that's sinful. So he kind of catches on this idea, but I don't think he takes the idea far enough. And so uh, we're we're going to talk about that a little bit more. <sighs> all right, so I'm just going to read this. Lewis states, "For I can hardly help regarding Venus as one of God's jokes." Is that where I'm at? Yep. As one of God's jokes, um, that a passion so soaring, so apparently transcendent as Eros, should thus be linked in incongruous symbiosis with a bodily appetite, which, like any other appetite, tactlessly reveals its connections with such mundane factors as weather, health, diet, circulation, and indigestion. In Eros, at times, we seem to be flying Venus gives us the sudden twitch that reminds us that we are really captive balloons. It's kind of interesting because the you balloon, think you're flying, you're flying, but you're a and you're balloon. really just a balloon that bounced to the top of the, the ceiling, the ceiling, or the and net. you're going to slowly descend at some point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, so I thought that was interesting, and he's going to continue to develop this for a little ways, and I'm, and um, I'm going to keep going on it. Well, and and just. I think in this one, it's very easy to see the connection he was trying to make Mm -hmm. in the introduction. Yeah. So what is the difference between drinking a glass of water and enjoying a great smell? When you're thirsty, you drink the glass of water, you're no longer thirsty. So someone really wants Venus Uh and they get it and they're no longer thirsty. And he is separating that from a love of the person. That after the act, the love shouldn't be gone. Correct? 
And the illustration uses the beginning yeah. of this chapter is you don't keep the box, the carton after you smoke all the cigarettes. That's it. You saw that part. Yeah. yeah and I was like, whoa, that's. <laughs> that's exa- so like there's a love of the yeah. beloved. Uh, there's yeah. an appreciation of the and person. And the one that wants different a woman. than the need. Yep. Mm-hmm. So For just, the, just yeah. whether or not I've specifically pinned it correctly, I think that undercurrent is happening here. Like he, he's looking at this issue of Eros and, Venus in that current of chapter two. Yes. Okay. I can, I can agree to that. Yeah. So then on page 127, man has held three views of his body and he goes through these three different views. Thirdly, we have the view that St. Francis expressed by calling his Did body. Did you say 127? 129. I'm sorry. My bad. It's okay. Okay. So three views of his body. And the third view, St. Francis expressed by calling his body brother ass. I'm uh, like, huh? what in the world is he talking about here? And then he states, ass is exquisitely right because no one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, lazy, obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast. And he equates basically hmm. our bodies with donkeys because they are necessary and useful, but they kind of do their own thing every once in a while. So the top of page 130, there's no living with it till we recognize that one of its functions in our lives is to play the part of buffoon. And so then he starts using this buffoonery terminology, which is really kind of funny, and how this buffoonery component of love and Venus uh, mixes together with this eros uh, to create a bit of a mess. And he connects this to the seriousness of Venus and the trickster and jokery component of it. All right, are you following? So this whole body, Venus, things mess up, and Eros is destroyed or messed up. So there's an interesting connection that he puts all together. Um, in the middle of page 130, he states, lovers, unless their love is very short-lived, again and again feel an element not only of comedy comedy not only of play but even of buffoonery in the body's expression of eros uh, i thought that was an interesting component and i wonder if um lewis is not being affected even by his own life in his own life circumstances because he was single for most of his adult life he married uh, older in life to a woman who was hospital, she was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, this whole buffoonery component of uh, Eros and love is actually something that there are tons of marriage books about because it's a regular issue. Uh, so there's truth to what he has to say here. But within these marriage books, if you, um, what I've noticed again and again is that um, the buffoonery component diminishes as a couple grows closer. Um, and the reason for that is because their love is getting deeper. In fact, uh, most marriage books say that uh, the best intimacy is not until a couple's been married for like 10 to 15 years. Well, there's a reason for that. There's practice that's been involved, plus there's been some awkward situations, the buffoonery, all right? And the couple has learned. You mean balloonery? (laughs) Either works. (laughs) Anyway, the the, um, 
And and I find that as a point that I wanted to at least bring it up. I mean, Lewis was not married for that long, uh, but but you can work through those kinds of issues, the, the buffoonery component of intimacy. In fact, the song encourages couples to pursue after it. That's what you see in song five, six, and seven, uh, where there are some problems and the couple has to work through those problems. And then the beauty that's created after the couple does work through it, the buffoonery can diminish. And maybe it doesn't go away completely, but it at least gets a whole lot uh, smaller. And Lewis, in his life circumstances, he wasn't married for a very long period of time. And furthermore, he was married to somebody who was, I mean, they got married in the hospital, didn't they? I think they did. If I remember correctly, she was hospitalized and dying. And dying. I'd right. have to look that up. So, I can confirm that. So it, um, this whole buffoonery thing I thought was something that I would at least highlight in that he's really only presenting, uh, say, a, a beginning relationship. And, and, and that a couple, if they're struggling with uh, some of the buffoonery and they're like, yeah, we sure get that. Well, they might want to pick up a book about the buffoonery component of uh, intimacy and don't give up on it, but just kind of work through it. In fact, as the couple, and this is what I've read too in several books, and I mean, I've even lived it, trials uh, can destroy a relationship. In fact, when a couple goes into, uh, when a couple encounters a trial or some kind of an issue in their relationship, it can result in divorce and it can totally separate that, the couple. But if the couple lives according to biblical principles and, and they uh, repent, and if there's forgiveness, if they're catching the foxes, what you get is actually something that's much sweeter, much better than the buffoonery or even uh, whatever is going on at the beginning of the relationship. And so that trust and confidence, uh, um, the closeness that develops in the couple uh, as they work through those issues can only be cultivated after living 10 to 15 years. Um, and that's why most of these marriage books, and they'll even attest to this, they will say, you know, it's not until 10 to 15 years later. And you can't hasten this process. You can't quicken it up. You simply have to live life together. You have to work through the problems, catch the little foxes together in the relationship. And in doing so, you draw closer together. So then the body, remember, that's the ass component that he's talking about, becomes less and less uh, because the two of you are being united in more than just a bodily component, but also just the, the melding of the souls is truly biblical harmony. So that was one uh, criticism that I had of this section. I felt like he didn't give the full justice and he just kind of left Eros and Venus uh, in this buffoonery stage. And furthermore, his support for the buffoonery came from the Greeks and other cultures and the sex jokes and all of that kind of stuff, which I don't see that. I see that secular world is going to, that's going to resonate with them, certainly. But from a biblical perspective, I don't see that. I see actually a seriousness to this thing that God's created, uh, this Eros, this Venus. Okay, that's what I've got on that. Any input or whatever? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so with this whole uh, Venus thing, I mean, he then starts talking very mythologically, and I wasn't sure how much I liked um, he, I liked this whole mythological uh, con connotation. Um, let's see here, where does he begin about it? 
he connects it to Ephesians 5 and Christ's love for the church. Um, so I have a note on page 136, but he talks about this, this mythologizing, which isn't surprising. Uh, we see this, in fact, bef- um, oh, here we go. On page 134, the sky father himself is only a pagan dream of one far greater than Zeus and far more masculine than the male. An immortal man is not even the sky father and cannot really wear his crown. So you have sky father, that's the man, and then you have earth woman, the woman, or the the earth is the woman. <clears throat> and so you have these two, Sky Father and then the Earth Woman. Uh, and and uh, and this is this whole mythological um, uh, language, which, I don't know, maybe you could do it a little bit, but it definitely breaks down. And I don't like how it sacralizes uh, uh, Venus. So um, within the Song of Songs, you have the man, and he is described as the king interesting. That's kind of like the the guy that's in charge. Uh, The man is the king and the woman is the queen. And within every household, that's what you have. He is the king of the household and she is the queen of the household. If we wanted to use president and vice president or something along that, that's fine, whatever. Uh, The point is just that within this marital union, you have these two people who are um, uh, supreme. Um, and and so he he makes this connection, and then he applies it to the church on page one thirty five. Uh, the husband is the head of the wife, just in so far as he is to her what Christ is to the church. He is to love her as Christ loved the church. Read on and gave his life for her. So he's teaching a biblical marital uh, ethic there. Headship is in an act of service to one's wealth, uh, to one's wife. Um, and there were some interesting connections that he made here, uh, but I still just am not really sure if I like this whole mythologizing. Um, I, I wouldn't say that Ephesians 5 is mythologizing marriage. I would say it's, it's analogizing it. It's creating an illustration of Christ in the church. And we see that, that, uh, analogy throughout scripture. <clears throat> okay, so uh, as he then continues this, this whole uh, connection between the man and the woman, he then brings in the feminist on page 136. Mm-hmm. The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex the crown offered to it, either in the pagan or in the Christian mystery, for the one is of paper and the other of thorns. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Okay, do you see the connection there? The crown that the man has. In the pagan, it's a crown of paper. It's fake. It's fake. It's fake. <laughs> yeah. And the crown of a Christian husband it should be sacrifice. Thorns. Sacrifice oh, of thorns. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So that's I, a great line. It really is. <clears throat> the real danger is man, not this that. This guy must have been good at writing. <clears throat> You know, he really is. He is. These analogies and uh, uh, stuff. Sometimes I think he might take them a little too far, but that's okay. We can still enjoy it. What's interesting, this is a huge tangent. (laughs) If if Four Loves is embodied in the narrative, which is Until We Have Faces, Uh which I think there's speculation on that, but um, Indy Wilson has a podcast where he talks about what Lewis tries to do in Until We Have Faces. Oh, and it's like 
he tried, he, this is what he wanted to do, and he went way too far with it. So just funny that as you're reading this chapter, you're like, yeah, he's kind of got some nice things, uh-huh. but then he's just going way too, too far, far with it. it. And it's, and Wilson's attempt is like, you just, it, it got away from him. Yeah. Like it was like, he just, it became a beast and he couldn't, couldn't control it anymore. Yeah. And so like, it's, it, you know, anyway. So I've read, I read Four Loves and then I wanted to read Till We Have Faces because I was told it was connected to Four Loves mm-hmm. and I didn't really see the connection. And then we're coming back to Four Loves and thinking about Till We Have Faces again. I see it better now. Mm. I think it's, so we've talked about this with Abolition of Man and the Ransom Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of have to go through them like two or three times. Yeah. Until you're like, oh, there, yeah. Yeah. And so like now you read through that hideous strength and it's like you can't unsee it. Yes, you can't. But so I've only, I've done, this is the second time through Four Loves and I've only done Till We Have Faces once. So. I don't know if I'm going to do Till We Have Faces again. I think (laughs) once was enough. (laughs) All right. So he rebukes the feminist here and it is a rebuke. Um, You know, they're envious of what? A crown? Well, what crown are you envious of? The paper crown? Okay, the fake one. Or the crown of thorns? You know, that's the biblical crown that would she should be envious of. Anyway, he continues, The real danger is not that husbands may grasp the ladder too eagerly. Think about that. You're grasping a crown too eagerly. What crown are you grasping? The crown of thorns. You crumple it. Or the thorns. Mm -hmm. You hurt yourself. And you hurt yourself. But that they will allow or compel their wives to usurp it. And this is a big issue in the friendship chapter where Lewis is clearly a complementarian. He sees biblical headship in the man. Um, And uh, uh, anyway, and he talks about this rebellious uh, woman and how that affects even the intimate relationship. And I skipped that section. That was back on page 131, 132. Uh, But I think I'm just going to keep going anyway. You can look that up on your own. Okay, so uh, I'm going to kind of start wrapping up here. There's still a fair amount to the chapter. Um, Oh, yeah, I have sections on 137, 138 I want to read. Okay, let's read this. This is the grandeur and terror of love. But notice, as before, side by side with this grandeur, the playfulness. So there's this grandeur to Eros, but there's this playfulness. Eros as well as Venus, is the subject of countless jokes. And even when the circumstances of the two lovers are so tragic that no bystander could keep back his tears, they themselves, in want, in hospital wards, on visitors' days in jail, will sometimes be surprised by a merriment which strikes the onlooker, but not them, as unbearably pathetic. Nothing is falser than the idea that mockery is necessarily hostile until they have a baby to laugh at. Lovers always are always laughing at each other. Okay, do you see what he's, I think, doing here? No. No. Do you see the hospital wards? This is when I stopped and I'm like, hospital wards? And that's when I looked back at the publication date. Because I thought this was written earlier, but 1960. This was his experience with love. And how it was mocking and then something to laugh about. It's not something that they could really experience at least a whole lot or the buffoonery. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was looking that up. I couldn't find if that was the case or not. 
So it is in the grandeur of Eros that the seeds of danger are concealed. Here it is. He has spoken like a god. His total commitment, his reckless disregard of happiness, his transcendence of self-regard sound like a message from the eternal world. And yet it cannot, just as it stands, be the voice of God himself. What page was that on? That's page 138. We're at the bottom? In the middle. It's the little paragraph right in the middle of 138. And I think he's really highlighting it because he's seeking so, to dethrone it. Is you inter- or is it interesting to you that he depicts... So he's in this discussion of like this complementarian idea. Yeah. And Eros is the man and Venus is the woman. He says he referring to Eros. And we know that Venus is the woman. Uh, I don't know if... I don't think that's... I mean, the chapter is written from a masculine perspective. Like the act of Venus is submitted to the desire of love. I I think that the the eros can can be on either side of that equation, though. So I don't know if that's It's interesting that he starts calling it a he, though. Yeah, I don't know if he's intentionally trying to correlate. Usually it's like Mars and Venus, not eros. But, and Venus. Yeah, but he's talking about Eris as the love, though. So, like, he he's he's personifying it. He's using personal pronouns. Okay, I don't know. Maybe I'd have to think about saying? that. Some no, more. I I don't think so. I'm not. I just I'm looking, but I'm not. I gotta rethink so, that. So, like, so at the end, bottom page one forty one. But Eris, honored without reservation and obeyed unconditionally, becomes a demon. Yeah, and so. Here we have this, he's kind of bringing things full circle. It's just the same idea back on page 138, where he's seeking to dethrone Eros. It's not a god. You cannot deify it. Divinely indifferent to our selfishness, he is also demonically rebellious to every claim of God or man that would oppose him. So he uses the masculine pronoun there, but I don't think he's making a real strong case for that. On I, I, we we can move on, but on one thirty six, one thirty seven, he does it like three or four times. Okay. Eros well, does not aim at happiness. We may think he does, mm-hmm. but when he is brought to the set test, it proves otherwise. So, like this Eros, this man, he's not trying to get happiness. Uh-huh. And then he depicts a couple, Eros and Vena, Venus, on one thirty six and one thirty seven. Uh-huh. And you tell the couple, well, you won't be happy, and he, Eros, doesn't care, and Venus, she doesn't care bottom of the thing if the voice within us does not say this it is not the voice of eros like let our hearts break together it's like it's like a boy and a girl couple eros and venus hmm. we can mm. come back to it but At the bottom of 136 from venus the carnal ingredient within eros i now turn to eros as a whole yeah so then keep going here we shall see the same pattern repeated as venus within eros does not really aim at pleasure so Eros does not aim at happiness. Right. Eros is the whole. Yeah. We may think he does. Who's he? Eros as a whole. Yep. So then the next page, it's talking about Eros is not aiming at happiness. This desire, which is a he, mm-hmm. is not aiming at happiness. Just like there's this couple. Mm-hmm. And we're like, guess what? If you stay together, you won't be happy. Right. And he, Eros, doesn't care. And she, Venus, doesn't care. Where's the she? Well, it's just the implication. If no, I don't think so. If they're if they're a couple that won't separate, even though they know they won't be happy, yeah. And then at the bottom, let our hearts break, even as long as they break together. Mm-hmm. It's like he he 
there, I'll come back to that. We'll do it another time. All right. So page 142, he continues to talk about this idolization. And I think this is his big point that he's seeking to do in the chapter, is he's seeking to dethrone Eros. This is not a god. It should not be that important of a love. You need to dethrone this desire within your life. God has to be the supreme love. So he states at the bottom of 142, the real danger seems to me not that lovers will idolize each other, but they will idolize Eros himself. Okay, so this idolization of Eros, well, you know, what is that? You're looking for this love, this experience. And to me, I think that's somewhat ironic because at the beginning of the chapter, he said a Christian couple can be experience Venus without Eros. In fact, they do. So um, anyway, that's why Eros needs to be uh, dethroned. Uh, Let's see here. Oh, yes. Okay. So now my last point that I had here is at the bottom of page 143, the final full paragraph. When lovers say of some act that we might blame, love made us do it, notice the tone. A man saying, I did it because I was frightened, or I did it because I was angry, speaks quite differently. Love made us do it. He is putting forward an excuse for what he feels to require excusing. Okay, this is his illustration of Eros being idolized itself. Because there was Eros, then guess what? I had to do. I had to do it. Himself. It's not itself. Himself. <laughs> it specifically says that. Just, just to point that out. All he right. Did, he does continue that theme from that point on, that it's a okay. him. Uh, so love made us do it. And this idea that love made us do it, it, it becomes like an authority, like a god. So as we continue to read this paragraph, and as you flip the page to page 144, the confession can be almost a boast. There can be a shade of defiance in it. They feel like martyrs. In extreme cases, what their words really express is a demure yet unshakable allegiance to the God Mm -hmm. of love. Which definitely is hearkening back to the early chapters of the demon and the God. Yep. Yep. So this is where I think that he is 100% on, where what mm-hmm. is Eros then? Well, it's not something that can be trusted. It is this desire. Okay. Anything? We good? What, do you have some closing thoughts here? You're going to wrap some things I, together? Yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. So right, right at the, that same page where we cut off, the, the very next paragraph... The spirit of Eros supersedes all laws, and they must not grieve it. What page are you on? 144. Is he still talking in the context of like people using it as an excuse of idolatry, or is it... Page 144. What was that again? The very last sentence there. In a... So, like, so after that, it it's New Testament. It's like this whole, like... I'm not sure where you're huh. at. What quote is this? 144. Sentence? Yeah. So like after that, the bottom of the page, after that, it's New Testament begins. Oh, here we go. They are. are now under a new law, under what corresponds in this religion to grace. They are new creatures. The spirit of Eros supersedes all laws and they must not grieve it. Oh yeah. He's, he's, um, he's, uh, and that's the psychology of the person that said, love made us do it. 
Sure. He's still he's still continuing that. Yeah, he's still thread. continuing okay. that idea. That's not his view. That's what. Yeah, I was like the spirit of Era supersedes all laws, and they must not grieve it. We must do what Era says. This is the way we feel. God oh, wants like, us to be happy. As in, like, don't grieve the spirit. Yeah, don't of grieve God. the spirit okay. of Eros. Yeah, okay. where a true Eros is present, resistance to his commands feels like apostasy. I have to listen. It's love. Yeah. And then, yeah. So that's at the top of that paragraph. Nice. Anyway, so why don't you give us some Bible? Why don't we All stick right. to our Bibles, Tim? Yeah, let's get into our Bibles. Let's Which get... there was a page in here where he said that. One of these pages, he's like, let's stick to our Bibles. Huh? Kind of <laughs> chuckled under my mic. Yeah, 135. We must go back to our Bibles. Let's read about some eras. That that is the one spot where he talks about the headship, which is actually pretty correct. So, good for him. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Okay, so what do you have here in Song 2, 8 through 13? You have Eros. The man is likened to a gazelle. And just like we have in Iowa... Uh, a time of the year, it's called the rut, when the white-tailed deer uh, have uh, something on their minds. So also, certain times of the year, the gazelle has something on its mind. And in Song 2.8, the gazelle, the man, has something on his mind, and he exhorts though uh, his wife, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. What do we have here? We have Eros. Um, and so what is the result, though, uh, for this uh, desire? In verse 14, he, uh, the man, the husband, uh, he um, emphasizes his desire even more. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Notice that this is Eros. This is not just Venus. Uh, because there's his love, his beloved. What does he connect her identity to? It is her face, her voice. She is a person. So this is where uh, Lewis was correct in that biblical love. It's the love of the person of which this intimacy, the conclusion of this closeness, would simply be the Venus. However, within this erotic section, there is an issue. And in verse 15, it states, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. The fragility, uh, the fragileness of love, and how foxes have spoiled the vines. So what do you do when Eros is calling but to one's spouse, Eris is not calling. Because <laughs> that's not what's going on in verse 15. And then what is the conclusion to the matter? Well, they do, it does resolve well. But biblical love is not about what you desire. It is not just listening to the call of Eros, but it is listening to one's spouse. It is by putting on the crown of thorns and ruling with selfless sacrifice. And what is that? That is to seize the foxes. 
despite the calling of Eros, you refuse the call of Eros, and you take up the crown of thorns, and you catch the foxes. That's what the Bible teaches. And this section, it uh, continues in Song 3, 1 through 4, but then it flips the gender. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek the one whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. So here we have the woman, and what is she doing? Is she listening to the call of Eros? I think not. She is seeking the one whom she loves, and it is the one whom her soul loves. It is not Eros that drives her out onto the city streets at night. Love made her do it? I don't think so. I think love, not an Eros kind of love, more of an agape kind of love, makes her do it, makes her go out on the city streets, which would be a dangerous place, a place where her husband shouldn't be, but she goes after him. This is true biblical love, where Eros does not exist, but she creates Venus, or maybe even creates Eros, nonetheless. In verse 3, the watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one whom my soul loves. I seized him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Um, I've taught about this and talked about it on the podcast before. It was a while ago. I don't remember what episode it is. You can listen to that episode for a fuller explanation and exegesis. And hopefully our book will be coming out soon and you can read about it there. But this is where love makes you do it real love, and just as a real love for one's spouse, uh, the man uh, uh, does not fulfill the eros desire in song two. In song three, the wife creates the eros desire, or at least offers her husband the Venus, uh, when there is no eros. Uh, And that's what we see here through the seizing just as the man seizes the foxes in Song 2.15. In Song 3.4, the woman seizes, the wife seizes her husband in Song 3.4. And this is the wisdom of love, love according to God's design. You're not a victim to Eros. You're not a victim to your feelings. Love can't make you do it. You're the one that's in control. And when you're married and there is no Eros, the Song of Songs teaches you, to create it. And when you're married and there is Eros, but there is no spouse or she is not willing, then what does love make you do? It makes you shut it down. This is the exhortation from the Bible, which is pretty similar to what Lewis is saying. Eros is not a god. Dethrone the god of sex, the god of Eros in your life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.